0: 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 is where we are this morning. Um, You remember the Apostle Paul is sort of addressing the Ephesian church through Timothy. So he addresses the letter to Timothy, his partner in ministry, but he's also kind of through him addressing the church in Ephesus. Um, We saw last week how the issue of leadership came up, specifically the uh, leadership that occurred in the context of corporate worship, but also leadership more broadly within the church and how some women within the church had assumed the role of pastor, elder, and had begun teaching with authority in the context of corporate worship. Um, I encourage you to check out the message from last week, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of our audio's there, um, but a really important message related to leadership, and it leads into uh, this morning's message. In chapter three, he continues to discuss what leadership is to look like um, in, in chapter 3 going through verse 13. So we're going to read all these verses and then uh, we'll dive in. I will say too, um, <clears throat> if I only had one of these messages to share with you from First Timothy, if I could only share one sermon with you first, from First Timothy, it would be on this section of Scripture. Um, amongst all the other passages that we have looked at and we will look at, I think for us and where we are as a culture and as a church, this is the most important one. Um, In four years, at Woodside Lapeer, I preached the same passage twice. So we had uh, the CP Choice Sunday, where we get to preach wherever we want to preach. The first year I was there, in one of those Sundays, I chose this text. And then last year, um, I chose this text as well, um, because I think it's that important, that relevant, to what we're going through as a church and what we're going through as a society. So let's read these words together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, and to a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, Bill O'Reilly, Michael Oreskes, Mark Halperin, Roger Ailes, Louis C.K., Charlie Rose, and the list could go on and on and on. Movie executives, actors, politicians, and leading media figures, all of these men in power who in recent months and years have been accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment of some sort. The last few years have been overwhelming, as it seems like Each week, we check out the news, and more allegations have surfaced, allegations of another well-known man in authority who has abused his position of power and influence in order to force himself on a woman without their consent. And gratefully, the public outcry against such behavior has been loud and widespread. This is wrong. This is not okay for anyone to behave like this. And so investigative news articles have been published, social media campaigns have been launched. You remember the hashtag MeToo campaign? Television news reports have explained details and shown pictures of perpetrators and their victims. And as I've listened to podcasts and watched news reports, it's clear that our society is asking itself, what is the standard for who we will give power? Just because these men are talented and can make awesome movies, just because these men are popular and can win elections, just because these men are effective leaders doesn't mean that we should entrust to them all this power because apparently it can be abused in some really terrible ways. Recently, I heard an interview with actress Reese Witherspoon. And the conversation came to Witherspoon's experience of being sexually harassed during her time in Hollywood making movies. And she eventually made this comment. Quote, she said, this is just my personal experience, so how can I use that not to just garner sympathy for myself, but to actually promote change and highlight industry standards that are not good enough? You see, Witherspoon is aware standards and qualifications for who is allowed in leadership needs to change. And friends, it is not every day that you get folks in Hollywood embracing ethical standards and moral norms and objective truth. There's generally a lot of moral relativism in our society and sadly also even in the church. But the situation has gotten so out of hand Everybody, even moral relativists, have been forced to ask themselves what is the standard for who we will give power? Well, as it regards church leadership, anyway, the answer that the apostle Paul gives is that the church is cared for, the church is led by qualified faithful leaders. In other words, not just anybody can be allowed to lead in the church even if they're super gifted, even if they're super competent, even if they can draw a big crowd, not just anybody can be allowed to lead in the church. Instead, there are biblical objective prerequisites, and they primarily, almost exclusively, relate to a person's character and their proven track record of faithfulness. But before we get into these different qualifications, It's important to notice that Paul isn't talking about leadership positions in general. Instead, he's talking about two specific offices of leadership that are in the New Testament. First, in verses 1 through 7, he shares qualifications for an elder or overseer, an office that's also called pastor in other parts of the New Testament. That's one office of leadership. That's the first one. It's one office of leadership with three different titles, elder, pastor, overseer. So it's kind of like the president of the United States. We refer to that one office of leadership as the president, as the commander in chief, and also as the leader of the free world. So that's three different titles for one office. Well, it's the same in the New Testament. They're called elders, and at other times they're called overseers, and the least of which, they are also called pastors. Well, the second office of leadership is that of deacon or deaconess, and the qualifications for that role are laid out in verses eight through 13. And Paul's focus in today's passage is on qualifications for these two offices of leadership, but it is worth saying something about what these offices of leadership do. Paul is is focusing on who they are to be, but it's worth focusing for a moment on what these different sets of leaders do. So to put it in simple terms, elders focus on the spiritual needs of the church and deacons focus on practical needs of the church. So through teaching, leading, praying, shepherding, elder pastor overseers exercise leadership in the church and deacons focus on any other number of practical needs that the church may have. So for example, in Acts chapter six, the early church is running into the practical issue of daily distribution of food for widows. And there was an accusation from some of the Gentile Christians that some of the Jewish Christians were not evenly distributing food to the Gentile widows within the church. So this problem is brought to the Apostles and here's how the Apostles respond to this problem that's been brought before them. It says the 12 Apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and they said it is not right that we as the Apostles should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, at first blush, you may think, man, this sounds awful arrogant for the apostles to say this. Do they think they are above serving tables? But I don't think that's true. It's not that they were too prideful to serve tables, it's just that that wasn't their role. As they say here, their role was the spiritual needs of the church, especially the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the Word. And this dynamic is analogous to how elders and deacons relate now in the church. Elder, pastor, overseers focus on the spiritual needs of the church through teaching, leading, praying, and shepherding, whereas deacons focus on practical needs the church may have. So for example, here at Woodside Royal Oak, myself, Jonathan Kwan, Eric Schindler, Andrew Frith, Nate Henderson, and Bill Roberts serve as elder pastors. We are the six brothers that this church has laid hands on to commission as elder pastor overseers. Me, Jonathan, and Eric are on staff. In other words, it's our job to do this, while Nate, Bill, and Andrew are volunteers. But we essentially have the same job, paid or unpaid. So we work together to help oversee the spiritual state of our, of our campus. We meet regularly to pray for our members and to discuss any pastoral care needs. And we also have had several deacons who provide leadership in several practical areas of safety and security, uh, Connect, Sunday Morning Hospitality, our Compassion Fund or Mercy Ministry, and other practical needs that have arisen. So that's a little bit about what these two offices of leadership are and how they function. But again, the apostles' focus in 1 Timothy chapter three is not so much on what they do, but on who they are and whether or not they're qualified to be in these different positions. And as we said before, the biblical standard is that the church is cared for by qualified, faithful leaders. In fact, if you look at these two lists from verses one through seven and verses eight through 13, if you look at the two lists, almost every one of the characteristics mentioned is a character quality. There's only one competency that Paul mentions, and that's for elders to be able to teach. As he says in chapter 3, verse 2, elders must be able to teach God's word. But that's the only competency. That's the only activity that's mentioned. Every other qualification relates to a person's character and their proven track record of faithfulness. And this should really humble us. This should really make us pause and ask ourselves, How we evaluate church leaders. Is it because they're rhetorically polished and can deliver an awesome sermon? Is it because they're amazingly talented and gifted and can draw a huge crowd, whether through music or preaching? Very often that's the case, but Paul's emphasis is the exact opposite, not so much on what they can do, but on who they are. So this should give us real pause as we evaluate leadership. So what do these different character qualities consist of? How can we identify the necessary qualities of a person before they're installed in either one of these two offices of leadership? The first one we see is that they must have control over their appetites. Church leaders must have control over their appetites. So look at the first specific qualification mentioned in verse 2. Paul is going to say, first off, That overseers must be above reproach. That's sort of a a general umbrella term for living in integrity, but the first specific characteristic he mentions is that he must be the husband of one wife. So the apostle says he's got to be a one-woman man. If a person is running around a taste of this, a taste of that, promiscuous, unfaithful, In other words, if he doesn't have control over his sexual appetite, then he is not fit to have power and influence amongst God's people. Otherwise, that would put the church in grave danger. The church's reputation would be in grave danger. Earlier, I read a list of movie executives and actors and politicians and businessmen who have been busted in the last couple of years during the the Me Too movement. But I'm sure that all of you guys know that I could just have easily come up with an equally long list of pastors who have done the same sort of things. And so I want to take time in light of this topic to say to anyone who has been sexually abused by a pastor or priest or any church leader, I'm sorry. And what happened to you was not your fault. And what happened to you is contrary to Jesus' design for how the church is to function. The Lord has mandated that elder pastor overseers have control over their sexual appetite and we ignore this to our peril. Furthermore, along with control over their sexual appetites, Paul says they've gotta have control over their appetite for drink, specifically alcoholic drink. He says in verse three, they must not be a drunkard. And in the next section about deacons in verse 8, Paul will say they must not be addicted to much wine. So it's important to note that he does not forbid drinking alcohol entirely. He says rather don't drink too much, don't get drunk, don't be addicted to much wine. There's got to be control and moderation over this appetite. Control over the appetite for sex, control over the appetite for drink, and finally, control over the appetite for money. In verse three, he says, elder pastor overseers must not be lovers of money. So again, there's nuance. He doesn't say that an elder pastor overseer can't have a lot of money. He can have a lot of money. He can be very wealthy, but he cannot love his money. That is, he cannot be ultimately motivated by money. He cannot find identity in his money. He cannot put money ahead of everything else in life, or this will lead to all sorts of bad decisions and hurtful behavior and ultimately God's judgment if he puts money ahead of people and God. And Paul says something similar about deacons in verse 8. It says they must not be greedy for dishonest gain. So again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with a church leader gaining a lot of money, but if it's done greedily, if it's done dishonestly, then they're not fit for leadership. God matters more than money. People matter more than money, and church leadership is about leading God's people. So if someone puts God and money ahead of God's people, then they shouldn't lead God's people. Church leaders have to have control over that appetite. A word that's been popularized recently, especially through a series of Snickers candy bar commercials, is the word hangry. And we all know what this is like. Being hangry is when you're so hungry for food that you lose control of your emotions. You lose control of your words. You lose control of your actions. Your hunger causes you anger, so you treat people angrily and hurtfully. And the tagline in those snicker bar commercials where they show different people being hangry, the tagline is, you're not you when you're hungry. In other words, you don't act like yourself. You don't act like you should when you lose control of your appetite. Well, the same thing happens in our lives when we lose control over our appetites, not just for food, but for sex, drink, and money. When those appetites control us, we are not ourselves. We don't act like we should. And so we should not be in leadership. So where are you with these different appetites? Are you surrendering them to the Lord? Are you fulfilling your heart's desires in his love for you? Are you trusting him with your financial needs and then freed to live a life of generosity? If so, praise God. Continue to walk in the spirit and rely on his grace. But if not, if you do sense that you are being controlled by any one of these appetites, no, It's not who God made you to be. Like the Snickers commercial says, you're not you when you're hungry. And trying to find your ultimate satisfaction in sex, substances, or money is just going to leave you hungry. It's just going to leave you empty. Instead, come to the cross where God's endless mercy and love can fulfill those desires that are in you. And as you open your heart and let go of those desires, allow him to fill you. And satisfy the longings of your soul. When a person is going through that process of living in surrender before the Lord, finding fulfillment in Jesus, then that's the kind of believer that's qualified for leadership. Of course, none of us do this perfectly. Very often we find our hands clenching back closed to hold on to the things of the world, but by God's grace we can grow in this process of surrendering our desires to him. But that's the first one. Church leaders have control over their appetite. And secondly, the apostle teaches church leaders are to have grace in relationships. Grace in relationships. So several things are listed here that relate to both how elders and deacons must conduct themselves in community. So first look at verse two. It says they must be hospitable. And this word hospitable, it literally translates a lover of strangers. It's the Greek word phylazenos. And it's the opposite of xenophobe. You may have heard of that word before. A xenophobe is the Greek word for someone who's afraid of strangers, who has a phobia towards strangers. Well, a a phylazenos is just the opposite. It's a lover of strangers. Another way you could put it is that church leaders aren't cliquish. They don't have their people with their inner circle that they give preference to. No, church leaders are to be open relationally. We're to be willing to connect with anyone and welcome anyone. We must have the relational grace of hospitality. Another way we see this is in verse 3. He says that leaders must not be violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. In other words, Paul says that A church leader in this case, specifically elder, pastor, overseers, they can't be a bully. They can't have a chip on their shoulder. They can't pick themselves up by putting others down in order to soothe their own insecurities. Finally, in verse 11, Paul says that leaders, in this case, specifically deacons, must not be slanderers. So the Greek word that's translated here as slanderers is diabolos. It's where we get the word diabolical from here. And the idea here is not just lying, but a specific kind of lying. It relates to lying about someone else or falsely accusing them. And this is important because as leaders, we are called to love people, not lie about them. But if we speak falsely about someone, then we destroy relationship with that someone. And so instead, we are to have grace towards people, not accusation and condemnation through lies. In Isaiah chapter 42, the prophet says about the Messiah that a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And the prophet's words there were meant to be a vivid description of Messiah's compassion and gentleness with people, especially broken people. So a bruised reed is a reed that's not strong. It's a reed that's losing stability. And the smoldering wick is a candle wick that's almost out. It's a candle wick that's losing its fire. Well, the prophet says that the Messiah didn't come to break bruised reeds. He didn't come to snuff out smoldering wicks. He didn't come to crush people. He didn't come to condemn and hurt people. He came to love us, to demonstrate compassion, to express tenderness. And that's exactly what Messiah Jesus did. Jesus had a relational grace to him. People were drawn to him. People felt safe in Jesus' presence. People felt loved and cared for and listened to. Not run over, not taken advantage of. He had relational grace. Church, what about us? These are the qualities of a leader, yes, but they are ultimately qualities of any Christ follower that we are to exhibit. Do our lives demonstrate the relational grace of Jesus? Are our hearts open to people with love? Are our homes open to people with hospitality? People are not always easy to love, including me. But God is calling us to live lives of love and grace towards people, all people, especially if we're going to lead God's people. Church leaders are to have control over their appetites, grace in relationships. Thirdly, leadership in their homes. Leadership in their homes. So think back to verses 4 and 5. Paul writes about elders. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Then in verse 12, similarly about deacons. Let deacons each manage their children and their own households well. So many times in the New Testament, the church is likened to the home. The church is likened to a family. And likewise, Paul says here that a Christian who is not leading well at home cannot lead well at the church because the church is a home. The church is a family. And Paul assumes here, though of course this isn't always the case, he assumes that there are children in the home. And the specific indicator here as to whether a leader is managing his household well is that his children are, and he uses the S word here again, I'm sorry, submissive. A leader must manage his household well, keeping his children submissive. So of course this does not mean that a leader's children must be perfectly obedient. However, the apostle does require that there's a general spirit of submission and acceptance of a parent's leadership from the kids. So this means that church leaders must intentionally cultivate an obedient heart in their children, and they must actively discipline their children when necessary. Now, he also adds this important qualifier that a parent does this, quote, with dignity. In other words, Paul does not allow license for parents to force their children to submit and rage at them until they obey. Rather, there's to be a delicate mix of tenderness and firmness in order to point our children in the true way of godliness. And if a parent has not proved themselves to be able to do that with their kids, then they're not ready to help lead the church. If a mother or a father is detached, and withdrawn from actively instructing and discipling their children, or if a parent is too forceful and tyrannical in their parenting, then this is an indication that their character is not ready for leadership in the church. Instead, they need to focus on their home first. In making this requirement for church leaders, many commentators have pointed out that Paul is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says if a leader can't manage his house, the smaller group, then he can't manage the church, the larger group. So for example, many of us are aware of the experience of teaching our children to drive or of being taught by our parents to drive. Well that process doesn't start off with your parents just giving you the keys and telling you to have at it. Just hop on the interstate, see how fast you can go, see how quickly you can bob and weave, maneuver traffic, No, you start off your driving experience on a smaller scale, and then you work your way up to larger, more difficult scenarios. So for me, my first driving experience was at my granddad's farm when I was around, I think, 14-year-old, maybe 13, driving his old beater farm truck. had corn growing in the floorboard of the truck. He would just let us drive across the pastures of his field. I'm not sure my grandma or my mom still know to this day, but it wasn't a big deal because these pastures were easy to operate in, just wide open. And then when I turned 15, my dad let me drive his truck on actual roads, but they were always country roads that weren't too heavily trafficked and pretty easy to get around. And then by the time I turned 16, I was closer to being ready to be on the larger, more complicated driving situations of the interstate or in the city. So there was this lesser to greater progression that I was able to experience and it enabled me to be a better driver. Well, the apostle here is urging the same sort of progression for a leader in the church, leading first well within their family and then amongst the family of God. Leaders must demonstrate they're able to take care of first things first at home, and then they'll be ready for the broader task of church leadership. So brothers and sisters, I have to ask you, What is the state of your home? What is the state of your leadership in your home? Are you stewarding your property well? Are you managing your finance well? Are you caring for and relating well with the other members of your home? Husbands, are you leading your wife spiritually through prayer and seeking God together? Wives, are you loving your husbands and encouraging them? Parents, are you rearing your kids with intentional discipline? and tender love, because we're not ready for leadership outside of our family until we're leading well within our family. It starts at home. Church leaders are to have control over their appetites, grace in relationships, leadership in their homes, and finally, they are to have maturity in the faith. Church leaders must have maturity in the faith. So look finally at verse 6 about elders, and then verse 10 about deacons. He says, an elder must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And verse 10, let deacons also be tested first, then let them serve if they prove themselves blameless. So as I've mentioned, one of the titles for this first office of leadership is not coincidentally elder, which is very literally translated old man. Because normally, the men nominated for this role are of age, to some degree. And with older men, oftentimes and ideally, with older men, there is a gravitas. There is a solemnity to their being. And it takes time to create. You know, you can't microwave an elder. Like a cheap, super quick TV dinner. No, a person has to sit in the crock pot <laughs> and simmer. And over the course of time, the nobility and dignity required to lead are created in the man. And so Paul says look, if you rush this, trouble is on the horizon. If you nominate a church leader, especially an elder, who's a recent convert, then he may become puffed up. Because a young leader has the tendency for power to go to his head. He gets puffed up with conceit and thinks, man, I'm something special. Look at me. Everybody's looking at me. Look at me, calling the shots, making plans, giving orders. And an unproven leader can become so consumed with themselves they don't realize it. They lost their footing and they fall into the condemnation of the devil, Paul says. You see, that was the devil's problem. He thought he could do God's job better than God. He was very impressed with himself. And younger people have a tendency to do the same. But you see, someone who's aged a bit Someone who's aged a bit has had more opportunities to run into the brick wall of reality and then wake up and realize, golly, what do you know? I'm just a man. A broken man. A weak man. A needy man. But you see, it's those kinds of people who God can take and shape into servant leaders. Leaders who lead not for their own good, leaders who lead for the glory of God and the good of God's people. Leaders who lead like Jesus led with sacrificial love and humility, laying down his life for the sake of others. You think about this, no one ever had more reason to be puffed up and self-consumed than Jesus. The Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords No one had more reason to be puffed up and self-impressed than Jesus did, and yet he embraced the way of the cross. He tasted death. So we might not have to. Church, we need leaders. The world needs leaders like that. Pastors who will nourish our souls with the truth of God, overseers who will keep watch over us and show compassionate concern for us, tried and true elders who can speak blessing and encouragement and challenge into our lives, deacons who will lead ministries with effectiveness and integrity. These are God's requirements for those of us who will fill these two offices of leadership. A noble task requires noble character. If we neglect God's standards for who can be in leadership, we will create the next Me Too movement. If we neglect God's standards for who can be in leadership, we will be the next headline. Count on it. But may it never be. May we at Woodside Royal Oak lovingly hold one another accountable and especially, especially hold accountable those who lead us. Pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.